Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. When you have someone like Nigel Farage on your case, that might not be what they get. And certainly he's now talking about this as, as a crusade against the bank and against the wider banking industry. If, if history tells us anything is once uh, Nigel Farage gets his teeth into something, he doesn't tend to let go uh, quickly. I'm David Merritt, and this is In The City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the city of London. And this week, there is only one story in town, and that is the resignation of Alison Rose, the chief executive of NatWest. The chief executive of NatWest Bank, that's Dame Alison Rose, has resigned after admitting that she was the source for a BBC story about Nigel Farage's bank details. He's already made it clear, actually, on Twitter, Kay, that uh, he wants to see uh, Sir Howard Davis, the chairman of NatWest, step down as well. Dame Alison Rose spent 31 years climbing through the NatWest ranks, from graduate trainee to first female boss of a major UK bank. It took just weeks for her career to crumble. She has been brought down by Nigel Farage, the great disruptor of the British establishment, who has struck again. He's brought down the boss of one of the UK's largest retail and commercial banking groups. So joining me today to unpack that story, I'm delighted to have Harry Wilson, Bloomberg's banking reporter, Paul Davies, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering banking and finance, and Joe Mays, who is a reporter on our UK government team. Welcome to In the City, everyone. Thank you. This story has been rumbling for a couple of weeks now. Harry, can you explain how this all kicked off and how we got to the point where the chief executive of NatWest has had to resign overnight? It's a pretty extraordinary story and it started uh, innocuously enough with Nigel Farage announcing on his Twitter that he'd been debanked and was perhaps going to be forced out of the country. Now, at that point, we didn't know what the bank was, but it quickly became apparent that the institution in question was Coots, which is the private banking arm of NatWest. Things escalated very quickly from there. Apologies were issued and a a dossier was produced which showed that Farage, as he had insinuated, had indeed been dropped in part because of his political beliefs. But then things took a pretty crazy turn, which was that there was a BBC story which came out and appeared to be immaculately sourced, which said that Farage had been dropped, in fact, because of him falling below a wealth criteria. Now, that was disproved to a large extent by this uh, dossier. Then came, obviously, the apologies I mentioned, but that wasn't enough. And following a sort of heady 24 hours now in which NatWest apologised twice, Alison Rose, the bank's CEO, issued her own statement. In the early hours of this morning, Rose herself stepped down after having previously admitted to a serious error of judgment. And now we are, we have one of the largest banks in the UK with an interim CEO and uh, Farage still on the warpath trying to call for the chairman to go now. So as we're taping this on Wednesday morning, Farage is calling for more people in the board of NatWest to step down. Earlier this week, he called for a full parliamentary inquiry in this. I mean, anybody, even down to a junior clerk in a bank, 
who breached a, the confidence of a customer would have to go. This is a non-partisan issue. This is not left or right-wing politics. This is about the British banking industry. It's about our financial services industry. It's about the biggest employer in this country. It matters. He's kind of got his scalp now, hasn't he? Do you think this draws a line under the scandal for NatWest, or is Nigel Farage going to succeed in, in persuading more of them at the bank to have to step down? If you said a week or so ago that Rose would go over this, I think a lot of people would have looked at you slightly askance, and now it's happened. And Farage definitely has the wind in his sails now. And also, crucially, he has an awful lot of political support here. It's not just that he is doing these things. You know, there was a very much a briefing campaign overnight from Number 10, from the Prime Minister's office and from the UK Finance Ministry, both basically saying that Rose had lost their confidence. And it's really that which seems to have kicked things over the line. And so with that in mind, you look at what the board did, and I guess the question then is, well, they seem to think that they had this thing sussed uh, yesterday afternoon with Rose agreeing to potentially cut her pay. But actually, obviously, that wasn't enough. And then that, that starts to raise questions about their own judgment. It would be too early to say that this is a done deal and that, for instance, the chairman, Howard Davies, can quietly get over this because he is due to be going anyway next year. But this obviously could hasten that. I mean, Alison Rose spent 30 years at that bank. has risen to become one of the most high-profile female chief executives in Britain. But you mentioned the politics on this. And yes, on Tuesday, when it became clear that the prime minister, the other members of the cabinet were losing confidence in Rose, then I guess her position became more untenable. The fact that Alison Rose was such a darling of the UK business community, and indeed the UK government, Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt, would constantly talk so highly of her. She was brought in to run the government's entrepreneurship review. Uh, She was on various business advisory councils. She was with Rishi Sunak only last week in number 10, smiling at the cabinet table, laughing together. And then for number 10 and number 11 to really come out last night and brief so hard against her. It shows me the real political edge of this story and how the government has seized on this issue and is trying to use it as a wedge against Labour, uh, who's saying you know they're not standing up for free speech amongst people who, who bank and so on. I think that, that's just a really striking thing to note. To remember here, of course, that the UK government still is the biggest shareholder in NatWest. Nigel Farage has disrupted British politics now for decades. He, of course, led the exit of Britain from the European Union, arguably bringing down various Conservative prime ministers in his wake. How is he still able to disrupt the British establishment so effectively? In terms of Nigel Farage, I think that part of what's going on here is that Rishi Sunak knows that he has a slight vulnerability on his right, on the right flank of the Conservative Party. And there are still influential figures within his party, people like David Davis. Prime Minister, back to the question raised quite rightly by my rightful friend, the member for uh, North East Somerset. The opposition politician he was referring to, of course, was Nigel Farage, whose bank account was closed, not because he was a PEP, not because of commercial reasons, but because his views did not align with the values of Coote's bank. A thinly veiled political discrimination. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Not public figures. I don't think we should be protected by them. But you are entitled to privacy by people with whom you have a specific commercial relationship. And your banker and doctor must be two of them. And if she has broken that code, she is not fit to run a bank. We could find out... Who have spoken very vocally on this issue. And Richard Sunak needs to keep those people on side. And that's why I think he has 
kind of weighed in so strongly on this issue and yes, effectively put that extra pressure on Rose to go and made this a big issue, perhaps more of an issue than the public might think it you know, warrants importance. You know, we're talking about a relatively small number of people here who are losing access to accounts. In case anyone doesn't know who Coots is or who they are, they are bankers to the rich and to royalty. King Charles's bank account is with Coots and they do have rules about how much cash you've got in order to have a bank account. And so, you know, that defence that they initially made on removing his bank account or the story that he didn't have enough funds on the surface could be entirely believable. But in fact, if it's the politics here that has taken over, I mean, Paul, is Alison Rose really just a victim of the political backdrop here rather than, say, for what she did, should she have lost her job? I mean, she's lost her job for admitting to explicitly speaking about an individual client of the bank, which obviously you really shouldn't do. Throughout Deutsche Bank's troubles with banking president Trump, they were very stern about not making sort of major statements about Trump or why they banked him or how they banked him and so on and so forth. And I think she crossed the line there, which was a terrible mistake and part of a much bigger mismanagement of this whole situation, which meant she had to go. But the problem for Nat West here is that they've been fighting this battle, which has become a political battle, but to my mind, isn't really about the politics at all, certainly not about Nigel Farage's politics, with one hand tied behind their back, because they can't reveal a lot of stuff about what the profitability of Nigel Farage's banking relationship with Coots looked like, either before he repaid his mortgage, which was the kind of the precursor to ditching him as a, as a client, or after. And I think Farage has, like, people have asked him to say, that they can release some more details about his account, his banking with them, to uh, to kind of you know show more detail about the story, and he's refused that. Obviously, the bank can't do it of its own accord, so we're left with sort of half the story, really, from that West point of view. But really, from the point of view of Alison Rose and the board and how they handled this, they made some fundamental errors of judgment. They knew that ditching uh, Farage as a client was going to create a massive media storm. And they've stumbled blindly into this as if they had no idea it was coming. How was it allowed to rumble on for so long? Obviously, Alison Rose knew what she said to the BBC journalist. And then for the bank to deny that that was the case, it was always going to come out in the end, wasn't it, Harry? I mean, it's one of those classic things. It's not necessarily the action, it's the cover-up. And in this case, it looks like they've fallen into that classic trap there. It's interesting that in the report itself, which Farage has released, one of the things that comes across again and again is the bank actually knowingly stating in there that dropping him will be a big issue for the bank. And yet, as Paul says, they seem to have been incredibly naive when they did it. They expected on the one hand that he would cause a lot of trouble and, and would make a media storm about it, but then don't seem to have prepared for it, which is quite remarkable. And uh, I mean, for, for that sort of, uh, sort of media management alone, you just have to think the sort of level of incompetence going on there is, is, is quite staggering. I admit they probably didn't expect it ever to get like this. And maybe even uh, Nigel Farage didn't. But once it happened, they just seemed pretty clueless. It's slightly astonishing when you step back and think about the motivations to make that move to remove his bank account. As you said, there was an internal debate, clearly, at Coots about the fallout from this. And yet they did it anyway. What possible motivation do you think internally at NatWest could there have been for this? How could they score such a spectacular own goal, Paul? Well, I think what's clear from all of the reporting around the details that have been released about this reputational risk report, how Farage was assessed and what they thought about him, is that, okay, so there's a lot of pretty colourful language in there 
about how he's xenophobic and lots of things about his politics and even some of his business dealings, which is very unwise stuff to include in a corporate report, almost certainly. But it strikes me that the main thrust of what was going on here is the bank talks about its values. Now, call me cynical, but I think of corporate value, a set of corporate values as being about the brand and the image that they want to present. It's not about deeply held religious or uh, beliefs or anything like this. And what they're really worried about with a very high profile campaigning media provocateur as a client is that he's going to say a bunch of things which is going to reflect badly on their reputation with all of their other customers and their staff, which is a very common and ordinary assessment that lots of companies make all the time. Banking is slightly different because you have to provide basic banking services, but this wasn't about basic banking services and this wasn't about an ordinary person sitting in their bedroom and saying some unfashionable things on social media. This is about a media provocateur who was known to be a client of Coots and the reputational risk entailed for the bank. And also the fact that he'd repaid his mortgage and was therefore bringing in less revenue while still being potentially high cost. He really is the arch media provocateur of Britain. And as I said, the the disruptor of the establishment. And he was making the argument in recent days that, you know, the establishment was trying to throw him out of Britain by debanking him. I mean, presumably he could have just gone along, trotted along to Lloyd's or HSBC and opened another bank account. I'm not sure you need a Coots bank account perhaps to stay uh, in Britain. But Joe, what does Farage do next? How do you see his next move on the great media stage after this victory that he's had? I mean, on on your last point, David, you, you kind of wonder if you're a bank today and Nigel Farage does come and say, please, can I have an account? You look at all this and you think, oh, I might not be, we might think twice about whether we want to take this person on as a client because of the reputational risk that, that Paul just talked about. In terms of what Nigel Farage does next, it's always an open question. Will he set up another party? Will he have another go at trying to become an MP and, and leading that movement again? We know he has support in that world. He's, as you say, a very influential figure in that regard. But he is always keeping us guessing, Nigel Farage. He has that media profile, that personality, but... It's hard to say, I must say. Richard Tice now running a reform. Could Nigel Farage come back there? We'll have to see. We're going to have an election in Britain next year. And as you mentioned earlier, Joe, part of the government's manoeuvring on this is to try to placate the wing of the party or their supporters who are a bit more sympathetic to Nigel Farage's politics. Is he going to play a bit of a bigger role, perhaps, in the election that is coming than perhaps we previously thought? I would not rule that out. I mean, he's effectively done it at the last what, two, three general elections. And, you know, Richie Sunak is in a difficult position in the polls and so on. He cannot afford to have a, you know, strong, effectively very right wing party contesting seats up in the Red Wall across the UK. They would lose votes, uh, the Conservative Party would, and that would cost them. So, yeah, that's why Sunak is, is so concerned about this. But Harry, what next then for NatWest? It's one of the biggest brands in banking in Britain. It's now without a full time. Chief Executive, they've appointed an interim CEO, but what does the next year hold for NatWest and who is most likely going to sit in the chair as the Chief Executive from here on? Well, in banking and and in many sort of businesses, the interims do have a habit of becoming permanent CEOs. And so, you know, we saw the same situation at HSBC not so long ago when they got rid of their CEO, the interim ultimately became the permanent CEO. So, Paul Foyt, who's replaced Alison Rose on an interim basis, would look pretty set fair as long as he does a reasonably decent job of probably becoming the next CEO, certainly in part because banks, like all businesses, want to minimise the amount of disruption. So you don't want to really have three CEOs in one year. So 
if you can keep it to two and if Thwaite brews up to the task, then I'd say he's in with a very good shout. Yeah. What do we know about Paul Thwaite? It's probably unknown to most people listening to this. Well, frankly, he's pretty unknown to me before today. But um, he, he's, he basically is he's a, a commercial banking guy. So he's the head of their commercial banking and institutional banking business, has been since 2019 when he took over effectively Alison Rose's old job when she got promoted to CEO. Before that, actually, there isn't too much on his uh, CV that we actually sort of know about. It seems like he might have been in transaction banking, but that's going back before then. It's a bit of a sort of uh, a black hole at the moment, which obviously we'll, we'll hope to fill in over time, and which presumably Nat West will want to fill in uh, if they want to make the case that he should be their next CEO. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Paul, are there any wider ramifications for banking in Britain after this? You know, the Farage versus Coots case is really not very widely applicable because it's about, you know, high value, high cost services to a high visibility, high profile client. The vast majority of people are not in that sort of situation at all. There is a problem with some people not getting the access to the banking services that they require in the UK, as there is in the US. And and a lot of that is to do with people being just too poor or lacking financial education and this sort of thing. Some politicians have claimed that ordinary individuals are being kicked out of banks for saying things, even just on social media, that somehow we're all being tracked for our political views. I mean, I've seen literally no evidence of this anywhere in any kind of news reports that I can think of or in any kind of like regulatory reports or any even sort of, you know, zones of investigation that conduct regulators are thinking about digging into. I mean, I guess they'll look at it now. There might well be a whole bunch of people who come forward and make these kinds of claims now. And and if there are, then it's worth investigating properly. But I don't imagine that many banks are really expending that much time and money on researching, you know, my mum's social media accounts to work out whether or not she might be a bit mad or say some crazy things, you know. Right. Again, in that tweet, though, Farage says we need both cultural and legal changes to a system that has unfairly shut down many thousands of innocent people. And I will do my best to be their voice. In the Brexit debate, of course, he managed to tap into this feeling that people have been left behind by the current system. He seems to be trying to drive another wedge in the system here again on this particular issue. And at least for now, the government has 
seemingly agreed. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the different tone from the Rishi Sunak, Jeremy Hunt administration in terms of friendliness to business. Joe, might this be a bit of a turning point in terms of kind of the political battle lines being drawn for the election? This idea of kind of the system and who is standing up for ordinary people against, say, the City of London. He talked about lessons learned, David. We had Andrew Griffiths on our UK Politics podcast, and he made exactly this point. Clearly, this was a very serious matter. In a democracy, it's fundamental that people can have the confidence that they continue their banking relationships, regardless of uh, what they say or the political views or or party that they support, uh, which is why it's important uh, that the board acted, that change has happened. Uh, We now need to go forward and make sure that we can learn those lessons and make sure, importantly, that this does not happen again. He was really leading into it. He was saying lessons need to be learned across you know, the whole financial sector. I want banks to look at themselves and ask themselves, are you denying services based on free speech? So it's definitely something where the government is trying to create a wedge. And if anything, we pick up a sense from within the Conservative Party that their move at this point to give themselves the best chance of winning the election is to really lead into these wedge political issues that they can kind of make hay out of where it's not really about public services or the NHS or cost of living or you know these issues that you might think are kind of bread and butter realities for the public. It's instead taking political dividing lines, such as the war on woke, for example, or these kind of cultural issues and and really trying to kind of paint yourself as the complete opposite to Labour and you know on the side of working people and what the kind of common sense view of politics is. That really is a strategy we're going to see more of. And it's not Sunak's, I don't think he's naturally comfortable with doing it, but he recognises that they need to do something to try and turn this poll gap around. And that's why we're seeing this kind of more aggressive stance they're taking on these issues. And this is is a perfect one for them, that they've made this about free speech, when really it probably isn't too much about free speech, the way we've talked about, but they wanted to make it like that, and that suits them politically. I guess also chief executives up and down the country will be looking at this and thinking, if I'm sat next to a journalist at a dinner... Maybe I shouldn't talk to them very much. I mean, Harry, isn't this really just a story about somebody misspeaking and being a little bit too loose-lipped when sitting next to a business reporter? Well, I suppose the point to make is actually that the way Rose has left the bank isn't so much the sort of exception, but rather the rule. I mean, you know, an awful lot of bank CEOs don't leave banks by their own volition. You just have to look in the UK, for instance, Barclays, where, you know, barely any CEO has ever sort of left that place um, of their own volition. And you know, equally, the same could be true of many other banks. So, frankly, you know, if the old saying is every career in politics ends in failure, well, in banking, it's sort of somewhat similar for CEOs. It's kind of like football management. You know, people rarely see out their time and sort of have a Alex Ferguson-esque career. You know, <laughs> more than likely, you're sort of more, more going to be in the sort of uh, Jose Marino sort of uh, constant <laughs> turn. On that note, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much to Harry, Paul and Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, if you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. This episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Sardi with additional editing by Blake Maples. And special thanks to Harry Wilson, Paul Davies and Joe Mays. Cool. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.